This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. Morning, church family. It's good to see you. How's everybody doing? A little spring in the air here. Feels good. Um, If you're new, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors of this church here. And uh, just a quick heads up, at the end of the service, just in case you were tempted to like take communion and jet, uh, at the end of the service, we're going to carve out maybe about five to seven minutes for Pastor Steve, one of the other elders, to come just kind of give a little bit of an update about some things related to my own uh, pastoral transition out of my role. And uh, so just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Please stick around. But for all of you to know, uh, whether you're a longtime part of Sound City or a newer part of Sound City, uh, the Lord has given us the mission to raise up wholehearted followers of Jesus. And we do that through times of singing. I was so grateful for the music and the singing this morning, Pastor John and Rachel leading us in that. And uh, man, just we do that through reading of God's word, through prayer, through eating and drinking at the table and being nourished by the body and the blood of Jesus and through being grounded in Scripture. So I want to take a few minutes, and we're going to unpack in Matthew chapter 25 our final parable in our Stories of the Kingdom series. This is the last one. We did it. We, we, I don't know what we did. We looked at the parables. We read a bunch of the Bible and learned uh, how to imagine what it would be like to live in the kingdom of God, that, that though we live these earthly lives, these earthly existences, meet, you know, seemingly mundane things like going to work or grocery shopping, we are part of a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual realm that is happening all around us, and Jesus truly is our king. Amen? And so that's, uh, that's what this series has been about. And today, we are going to look at the parable of these foolish and wise virgins, or as I have titled it, the one where some young ladies are smart, but others are dumb. And I really, really want to give a special shout out to Pastor Steve, who, when I, I, whenever we come up with a sermon series, I'll usually do like a proposal and I'll give it to the elders and say, here's what I want to do, here's how many weeks. And I often will come up with goofy sermon title names. Uh, there is a draft somewhere out there of the sermon series in Judges that we did years ago where every sermon title was a Metallica song. And so I don't know where that one went, but on this one, I did all these kind of like the one where, like in the style of Friends, the TV show, and Pastor Steve was saying, if, if we don't do that, I'm going to 
like file an official protest with the, with the church. So anyways, we're in Matthew 25. Uh, we're going to spend a few minutes unpacking this parable. But before we do anything, will you join with me in prayer? Because nothing that I say means anything if the Spirit of God doesn't stir in our hearts and bring these words to life in us. So let's pray. God, I need you. We need you. Lord, we don't just want to look at some you know, words on a page. We want to encounter and experience the living God, the resurrected Savior, and the Holy Spirit who has been poured out into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to grow in our awareness, our alertness, uh, as a result of this time reading in this parable. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here in person or maybe listening online who is not yet a follower of Jesus, Lord, I ask and pray that they would not delay and that they would purchase the oil of, of, of the Holy Spirit that has been bought for them with the blood of Jesus Christ today and bring salvation into their hearts and their lives. God, we give this time to you. We ask that you would show us wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a number of years ago, there was a couple that was a part of this church. They were engaged, and they got married, and I did their wedding, and they said, we're very sorry, our wedding date, and it was on my birthday. It's the first time in my ministry life I did a wedding ceremony on my birthday, and they said, we're really sorry. I said, it's okay. It's special. I'll never forget your anniversary. So we, we did the wedding ceremony, and we were kind of planning, and I always do like a, you know, a meeting, series of meetings, usually kind of pre-marriage counseling, but you always have one meeting where it's like, okay, what's going what's gonna to be a part of the service? Are we doing this? Are we doing that? Are we lighting a candle? Are we doing communion? Is there a special song? You have to kind of plan the wedding ceremony out. And she said, oh yeah, there is one special thing we want to do. And she's of, uh, the wife, the, the bride was of Ecuadorian heritage. She said, in Ecuador, there's this, tra- there's this tradition where you tie the bride and the groom together with a lasso. I was like, yeehaw, count me in. Like, do I get, do I get to tie you up? She's like, no, 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 my father will tie us up. Like, that's boring. I want to do it. So anyways, she said, and she said, I know, it's kind of strange. I'm sorry. It's a weird, it's a weird tradition. And I said, I kind of looked at her. I said, well, actually, when you think about it, every wedding tradition is strange, right? Like for crying out loud until a few years ago, when we realized it was bad for birds, we were throwing rice at people. Congratulations on finding the love of your life. I will now pelt you with grain. Uh, anybody ever do like, I'm not, well, maybe I don't want to ask you. Yeah, no, admit, admit this. Be a man. Admit it. Did any of y'all do unity sand at your wedding? Okay, that's a weird one that I've seen. Uh, I remember going to a Christian wedding with a non-Christian friend of mine, and they did the very biblical, very christian sort of thing of doing a foot washing. And my non-Christian friend was like, what in the world is happening right now? Wedding traditions are strange. I started Googling uh, just for fun. In Italy, they don't throw rice. They throw sugared almonds. Apparently, they want to cause more damage. Uh, in Kenya, the, the Maasai people, the tribal uh, group called the Maasai, the father of the bride spits on his daughter. And I know you're all gasping in horror, but actually in the Maasai tradition, it's actually spitting is a sign of respect. Think like, like spitting in your hand and shaking your hands. It's actually kind of seen as like this honor. I, I know, I think it's gross, but I'm not Maasai. Uh, in Korea, I read that there's a tradition in certain parts of Korea of taking the groom, tie up his feet and hitting his feet with a dead fish. Now I texted, I asked Myung, and Myung, you said you've never heard of that? <laughs> but, but it can't be phony, Myung. I read it on the internet, okay? I don't know. 
Anybody else? Any? No? I don't know. I also read that in certain parts of the South in America, they take a bottle of bourbon and they bury it upside down. I've never personally witnessed that, but they do strange things in the South. I also, okay, here's one that I did read that I, I think I read on multiple sites on the internet, so you know it's extra true. In Sweden, the bride and the groom kiss, and then the groom leaves the room, and every one of the guests comes up and kisses the bride. Then the bride leaves the room, and everyone comes up and kisses the groom. It's like the last chance, like, you really missed out, right? Watch, mm, like, put on some (laughs) chapstick or something. I don't know. So in the Bible, we really don't get a lot of uh, detailed information about wedding customs and wedding traditions. And this parable we're addressing today is about some wedding customs, and there's some kind of strange things about this parable. And scholars kind of go back and forth, and they're trying to say, like, is this, like, a normal part of a wedding, or is this something kind of stretched, or something kind of hyperbolic that Jesus was doing for the purpose of this parable? Really, we, we only see some wedding information, um, like, specifics around wedding information, just in little glimpses here and there. We get, like, the story of Jacob and his, his uh, father-in-law Laban kind of swapping out the sisters. And so we know that there was like some sort of a veil involved or something like that. We, we get some little glimpses here and there in the Song of Songs, which is this poetic, romantic love poem. But in Psalm 45, we see uh, maybe one of the clearer passages of what a wedding tradition might have been like in the times of the Bible. And this is about the king's wedding. He, the king is getting married, and it's a celebration of the king marrying this princess. So it says in Psalm 45, verse 13, in her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious, her clothing embroidered with gold. In colorful garments, she is led to the king. After her, the, the virgins, or, or the young ladies, that term both in the Old Testament Hebrew as well in the New Testament Greek, simply means a young woman who is not yet married. Think like bridesmaids in a wedding. Tradition would be that they were all to be unmarried young women. So after her, these virgins, her companions, are brought to you. They are led in with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. So we can glean a few details. I mean, this passage is likely idealized, right? This is the king's wedding. This is a dream wedding. This is, you know, this is like when all of y'all were wasting all of your lives watching the royal weddings over in England. Like, we threw tea into a harbor so that I didn't have to pay attention to any royal weddings in England, but y'all were doing that. But this passage is like idealized, right? It's a kingly royal wedding, and we see that the bride is is decked out. We see that the king is, is waiting, and we see that there's some sort of a procession, you know, in our modern weddings, the processions really just come from the back of the room to the front. But in ancient times, it would be a much longer procession. A lot of times, they would parade all the way through the village or all the way through the streets of the town, making a big deal, a big celebration. This man and this woman are uniting together in the covenant of marriage for life. Leon Morris, who's a biblical scholar, says this. He says, we do not have complete information about wedding customs in first century Palestine. Nobody seems to have thought it worthwhile to set down in detail what was normally done. After all, why should anyone do this? Everyone knew what happened in a wedding. So we are left with stories like the present one, like the parable we're going to look at today, which tell us some of the things that were done and leave us to guess at others. So let's do this. Let's dive in. Matthew 25, okay? Jesus is teaching publicly, just outside of Jerusalem. He's teaching his disciples specifically. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps 
and went out to meet the groom. So this is a big wedding party. I don't know how many, you know, bridesmaids or groomsmen you had in your wedding, but I'm going to guess it was fewer than 10. That's a big wedding party. So Jesus is already kind of heightening this story. These virgins, these young women, they have these lamps. You can see that there's something involved in their responsibilities that involve light. Nighttime, no no electricity. Somebody's got to have the lamp. And actually, some scholars say that the better translation for this word would actually be torches. Think like torches that you'd soak in oil that would provide a lot of light at nighttime. Now, five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. Um, Does anybody remember in the book of Proverbs where wisdom and foolishness are both kind of personified as a woman? There's lady wisdom you can read about in Proverbs, like in chapter 8, and there's lady folly who stands at the street corner. It, It seems to me that Jesus is drawing on the wisdom tradition of the book of Proverbs. But again, he's, he's not just content with one of each. He wants five of each. And I can't help but think in my own life, um, I have four daughters. And up until recently, having all those daughters means that more girls just are always in my house. My house is always full. I am running a women's ministry. I am a minority in a sorority my whole entire life. And <laughs> I debated whether I should tell this story or not, but my daughters aren't here yet at this service. Speaking of wise and foolish young women, one time, these daughters, of one, one of my daughters who shall remain nameless to protect the innocent had friends over. And um, my wife and I were in bed going to sleep. I'm drifting off. I think it was a Friday night. And I get a very, very frantic pounding on my door. And my one daughter said, Dad, the police are here. Like, I didn't do anything. You go talk to them. And, uh, <laughs> and I come downstairs and there's a bunch of ruckus. And I'm like, what is happening? And they're like, well... And the police officer is standing there and like, somebody call 911. And the, the one girl goes, well, it was an accident. My phone just accidentally dialed 911. She's like, how? Well, somebody dared me to microwave my phone. And, and apparently that does bad things to your phone. And in their haste to like fix it, they started dialing 911. And the real clincher was the, <laughs> the one girl was like, oh no, I microwaved my phone. What do I do? It's acting up. I know. Put it in the freezer to cool it off. <laughs> Didn't fix anything. The cop showed up and I said, no, there's no crime here, but you could take a few of these young ladies with you if you'd like. I, I, <laughs> so yes, foolish young women, unlike the wise young women that I'm raising in my household. Now, it said when the foolish Young women, the foolish ones, took their lamps. They didn't take any oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. So they got these torches. They have some sort of a container. They've got extra provisions. They've got extra oil. Now, when the groom was delayed, and and Jesus doesn't say why the delay, but just notice this delay. Notice this delay that's been such a common idea in so many of these parables, a long journey, a delayed return. It says they all, all of them, became drowsy and fell asleep. So all of them fell asleep. That's normal. It's late. It's dark. They're waiting. They all became drowsy and they fell asleep. The problem isn't getting tired at night. Now, verse 6, in the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom. Come out to meet him. And some of y'all are like, a midnight wedding? I am out. I am too old for that. I can't do that. Then all the virgins, all these young ladies, got up and they trimmed their lamps. 
But the foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. And the wise ones answered, no way. There's not enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Now, this is one of those little details like, was it common for oil shops to be open in the middle of the night when there's a wedding? Probably not. Some scholars might say, yeah, you have to go down to the neighborhood Walmart and buy your oil for your land. Like, it's just kind of not how it works. But either way, Jesus is using this as a storytelling device. They're just not ready. They have to run out. They have to go try to find the provisions that they should have already had. Now, when they had gone out to buy some, well, that's when the groom arrived. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. It is party time. So many of these parables involve a feast, a party. Even as Pastor John was saying, God wants to be with his people. It's such a repeated and clear and beautiful motif of these parables. But the door was shut. It's the middle of the night. Got to stay safe. Now that the groom is here, we don't know who else would want to show up. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. And he replied, Truly, I don't know you. And then Jesus closes with this final sentence. He says, Therefore, be alert. Because you don't know either the day or the hour. And that is the big idea of this parable. I love it when Jesus himself just explicitly says it. The big idea is be alert. We don't know the day or the hour. We need to be alert. Now, I want to spend the time that we have left asking and answering three questions related to this big idea. Being alert, we don't know the day or the hour. The first question I want to ask and address is, what is this day or hour? What are we talking about? Number two is, how do we get ready? And then the third question is, how do we stay ready and stay alert? So understanding what it is, preparation, and then execution, okay? So this first question, what is this day or this hour that we are supposed to get ready for? Well, a little context in the book of Matthew will help us. So in the book of Matthew, if you go back just a few chapters, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the the triumphal entry, humble and mounted on a donkey. The people are waving palm branches. We actually celebrate that each year as Christians on Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday. And guess what? Pastor John ordered us some sort of palm branches. So be here early. We're going to hand them out. Uh, keep them away from the young children. They're sharp, I'm, I'm told. Uh, or we'll just send them downstairs and let the kids' ministry workers figure it out. Uh, that was a joke. We keep our kids very safe. So Jesus... He enters Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, and then for several chapters, he has these interactions with the religious leaders who don't like him, and they're, they're questioning him. And so Jesus tells a lot of parables. Now, as they're leaving, so this whole scene takes place on this Sunday, and it says, as they're leaving the temple and heading out of town, probably to go to nearby Bethany or out to the Mount of Olives, the disciples go, man, that temple is super impressive. Look at all, look at all that temple. And Jesus launches into this discourse, which is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. In this chapter, Matthew chapter, excuse me, 24, Jesus starts talking a lot about the end of the age and when the Son of Man comes in his glory. 
And you need to beware of false messiahs. And there will be wars and there will be famines and there will be earthquakes, but don't panic. You need to stay alert and you need to stay ready. It's this whole big section about the end of the age. And then after Jesus does this this chapter-long teaching, he goes into several parables. This one, the parable of the talents that Pastor Doug preached on a few weeks back, and then the story of separating, the analogy rather, of like separating the sheep and the goats. All that to say... The context makes it very clear that this parable is about the end of the age. It's the end of the age. And if I could use uh, the more biblical term, the term is the day, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a term you see a lot in the Old Testament. And by the time you get to the time of Jesus, it's often just referred to as the day. The Holman Bible Dictionary defines it this way. The time when God reveals his sovereignty over human powers and over human existence. The time when God really shows this kingdom work. We're imagining it right now. We're trying to be sensitized to it. We're trying to see it with our spiritual eyes, not our earthly eyes. But there is a day when God will fully reveal his sovereignty over everything that humans are doing. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. He's in charge. Now, this idea of the day of the Lord is a little bit, there's there's some complexity to it. Like many things in biblical prophecy, it's not uh, not just a straight arrow or a straightforward line. I want you to understand that the day of the Lord is about both reckoning and reward. Reckoning and reward. This day of the Lord, the idea is this. God is a God of justice. Amen? This is not a trick question. Let's try it again. God is a God of justice. And those who sin and violate God's commandments and stand opposed to God's will, they deserve, we deserve a just punishment. Amen? And those who are obedient to the Lord deserve his reward. Now, you get, you get a very simple, a very straightforward idea. But you also start to see in the pages of the Bible, particularly in certain Psalms, certain minor prophets, it, definitely in the book of Job, where some people start to ask the question, well, hold on a second. I thought that righteous people are supposed to be rewarded. And I thought that wicked people were supposed to receive judgment. Why is it that that very obviously wicked person seems to be flourishing? And why is it, oh God, that this righteous person, this seemingly good person, Job himself, I've not done anything wrong, why is it that this righteous person seems to be suffering so much? And one of the answers to that question throughout the pages of the Bible is the day of the Lord. At the end of the age, the Lord will sort it out. Right now, we live in a fallen world We live in a complicated world. And yes, God is a God of justice. He will punish the guilty. He will reward the righteous. But in the here and now, 
It's a little bit complicated. But if we will just trust him, if we will just have faith in him, if we will just patiently endure to the day of the Lord, well, then we will see the day of God's reckoning and the day of God's reward. And so therefore, the Bible speaks about it as a day both of sadness and a day of solace. You you can see this really clearly in Isaiah chapter 34 and Isaiah chapter 35. It's all throughout, particularly all throughout the minor prophets, but really in the major prophet of Isaiah. In Isaiah 34, it says, for the Lord has a day, a day of vengeance. And it spends almost this entire chapter outlining just all of the, 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 the judgment of the Lord upon unrighteousness. It is a terrifying passage. It is a description, a poetic description of hell and the judgment at the end of the age. But then immediately in Isaiah chapter 35, it also speaks of the day of the Lord in terms like the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The day of the Lord is this day of great terror, but it is also this day of great rejoicing. And the real question, the determining factor is, whose side are you on when that day happens? Now, here's the last and the most complicated part of this idea of the day of the Lord is that it is spoken of in terms that are both immediate, like sudden, day of the Lord, sudden, but also in terms that are ongoing. Matthew 24 is one of the most contested sections of scripture in terms of how we are to interpret it. And depending on your upbringing, your theological training, your church denominational background, people have wildly differing ideas of how we should interpret Matthew 24. There are some things in Matthew chapter 24 that are just very obviously about judgment on Jerusalem that everyone sees happened in AD 70. There are just some really clear things. I'm not going to unpack it because I want to stay more focused on Matthew 25, but there's some really clear things about the destruction of the temple in, in, in Jerusalem in, in the year 70 AD. And there are also some things in Matthew 24 that are really clearly not about that, that are seemingly about this future final day, this final day of the Lord. In fact, some of the New Testament writers speak of Jesus' crucifixion in day of the Lord sort of terminology. And other places in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is thought of as the return of Jesus. So I am of the opinion, this is my interpretive opinion, you can disagree with me and that's okay, but I believe that the day of the Lord is this season that we are now living in between Christ's first coming and his last coming, that it is both this immediate day of judgment where Jesus was judged on the cross in our place for our sins, and it will be the final day of his return when he arrives in glory to judge the living and the day, dead. We are living in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, you may disagree with me, and that's okay. The part where we can probably almost certainly agree is that we are awaiting the ultimate future day of the Lord when Jesus returns. We are awaiting a day when the sky 
will crack open and we will see the nail-scarred hands and feet of our triumphant returning king. And he will establish his kingdom here on earth fully as it is in heaven. Death will be no more. Sickness will be no more. Crying will be no more. For the former things have passed away. And all who have repented of their sinfulness and been united to Christ's perfect righteousness will receive the reward of eternal life in him. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. We, we so often, we look back on what Jesus did on the cross. And we look back on what he did in that empty tomb on that third day. And that's so important. But we cannot forget that there is more gospel awaiting us in the future. The good news of the return of Jesus on the day of the Lord. So which leads us to the second question, which is, how do we get ready? How do we get ready? Very simply, know him and love him. Know him and love him. Did you notice that these foolish ones, these young ladies, they ran to the other ones and they said, let us, let us borrow some of your oil. We need some of this oil. We're out. And the wise young women said, no way. We don't, you can't share that. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations throughout church history on what the oil signifies. Some say it signifies good works. Some say it signifies faith. I'm personally convinced that based on what we so often see in the Bible, the most, the, the, the most um, applicable interpretation would be that the oil represents the Holy Spirit that is given to those who believe. Either way, these foolish young women hadn't taken things personally. They did not know the groom. The, the wise ones, it says, those who, who were with him, those who knew him, those who were relationally tied to him, went into the banquet. And those who were just hanging on, hanging around the party, they did not have a personal knowledge of the groom. Craig Blomberg says that spiritual preparedness may not be transferred from one individual to another. You must know the groom personally. To any of you who are are children or young people in here whose parents are raising you uh, in in the faith, the Christian faith, to know and to love Jesus, you cannot ride your parents' coattails into the wedding supper of the Lamb. You must make a personal decision. I am going to follow the Lord. I want to know this groom. I will have my my lamp filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. For some of you who just come to church because your husband drags you or your wife drags you, you cannot ride on someone else's coattails. You cannot borrow from someone else's faith. You must personally know Know and love this groom of whom we're speaking of, Jesus Christ. And you must love him. That, that word love, that word know, it says, when, when the groom says, I don't know you, that word know, all throughout the Bible, is a, it's a term of relational intimacy. In fact, in some places in the Bible, it's used for like the most relationally intimate thing between a husband and a wife. This knowing is not just, oh yeah, I like know, like, like I know about, you know, whoever. Jim Carrey, right? Like, I don't know why I picked him. I have no idea. Like, it's somebody famous, right? Oh, yeah, I know. No, no. Like, do you know this person? 
Do you spend time with this person? Do you have a a close relationship? It's It's a term of relational intimacy. And remember, this whole parable takes place in a wedding celebration, a celebration of love, affection, creates preparedness. You must know this groom for yourself and you must love him and you will be prepared. You will be ready. You must know his love poured out on the cross and you must respond in love. You know, you could just fear him. You could just have dutiful, this is the groom, it's the right thing to do, but all of those will run out. Only love, true, deep relationship of love will fuel a lifetime of preparedness for the return of Jesus. So how do we get ready? You got to know Jesus and you got to love him. You got to love him because he has loved us. Which leads to the third and final question, which is how do we then stay alert? How do we stay alert? Three things I want to point out to you. The first one is we must cultivate patience. You know, I was struck, I was struck, um, actually the first time that the thought really kind of, you know, started knocking over the dominoes in my brain, I have dominoes in my brain, um, was when Pastor Doug was preaching on the parable of the talents, which is the very next parable here in Matthew chapter 25. And Pastor Doug pointed out that the master, he went on, he said he went on a long journey. It was like this long time of waiting. And there's been some other ones too, but you know, this long period of time where the master goes away after a long time. And in this one, it says the groom was delayed. They're all waiting. And it's interesting. I started comparing it to just some of my own experiences being raised in a wonderful Christian family, being raised in, in for the most part, really good Jesus-loving Bible-following churches. But I often heard something more akin to panic when it came to the return of Jesus. I would often hear messages like, you got to be ready, you got to be ready, you got to be ready. It could happen tonight, it could happen tomorrow. What if, don't be sinning, because what if Jesus comes back while you're in the middle of sinning? Uh, you know, like, just, it was, it was so much of this focus on the urgency. And I, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, just this last few months as I'm reading through these parables, I just noticed how often there's this, yeah, but long journey, long delay. I do think there is an urgency in these parables. Be alert, be ready, for no one knows the day or the hour. And yet here's Jesus himself saying, eh, it might be like a, like a delay. It might feel like a, where is he? How many of you long for Jesus to return? I would be extremely happy if I didn't get to finish this worship gathering. Not because I don't have a good ending to the sermon, but just because I just, I want to see Jesus face to face. I want that. But I'm instructed here to be patient. So no fear tactics about the return of Jesus and no passivity. Well, I guess maybe he'll come back someday when he feels like it. Be ready and be patient. You tracking with me, church family? It's a tough tension to live in. So we need to cultivate patience. Number two, we need to cultivate participation. I see in this passage that these young women have a job to do. 
They have an important responsibility. They have an important job to do. Now, they can't make the groom arrive. They didn't cause the wedding celebration to happen, but you know what they are supposed to do? Light the torch and make a big deal when the groom arrives. Draw some attention to this guy. Now, you and I, we did not come up with God's plan of salvation. You and I don't initiate, God initiates the the wedding You and I can't make Jesus appear and come any sooner, but you know what we can do? We can make a noise. We can light something on fire, metaphorically speaking, and draw attention to this amazing groom. We have a real job to do. We have a real part to play. God doesn't need us. God could, and he sometimes does, just miraculously save somebody through a dream or through an angelic visitation. But the most common way that God works in the world is through his sons and daughters who have their torches lit. So you have a job to do. You have a part to play. This is no passivity, sit back, well, I guess Jesus is just gonna save whoever he's gonna save. Light the oil, Get your heart set on fire. Participate in the heralding of this groom. That'll help you stay alert. And then third, and finally, make sure that you have plenty. Now, here's what I mean by this. Uh, Again, there's debates about what the oil symbolizes. I think it's uh, a symbol for the Holy Spirit, So let's just go with that. Again, there's other interpretive possibilities, but let's just be reminded of what our brother Myung taught us last week, that God loves to give more and more of the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Whatever it is that these young women needed and whatever these young women had, whatever that symbolism is, they had lots of it. And here's how I think this applies to us in terms of staying alert is... You can never have too much of God's Holy Spirit within you. You can never have too much faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can never have too much of whatever spiritual resources that the Lord wants to pour out into your life. what, What I'm saying is this. Get as much of Jesus in your life as you possibly can. Get as much of God's word in your life as you possibly can. Get, as mu- get, get plenty of spiritual reserves. Because you know what? As you wait for the return of Jesus, you might get sleepy. It's no, I mean, all of 10 of these young women fell asleep. You might feel a little bit like, wow, what is, what is taking Jesus so long? And your passion may start to fade. And your desire to spend time in God's worship may fade. Your desire to gather in gathered worship like this may start to fade. Your desire to gather in smaller groups for relationship and Bible study and fellowship, those things may fade. Friends, get plenty. Build up your reserves. Do I need to read the Bible three times a day to be safe? No. But what if that practice, like, man, what if I set aside three times a day just intentionally to pray and seek the Lord? Do you have to do that to be considered righteous? No, you're righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But what is it going to hurt you to drink as deeply as you can of the living water that God has for you? What I'm saying is get as much of God in your life as you possibly can. All right, I'm going to start preaching here soon. Okay. I want to close by asking a few questions. 
Let's think about this. Let's think about this parable, okay? I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I truly meditated on how joyful that final day will be? Ah. Just looking across this room, I know of some situations that would be deeply, deeply improved by the return of Jesus and his advent here on this earth. What a glorious day that's going to be. This ain't no fairy tale, friends. This is what we believe. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we can trust him when he says, I will return. Second question to cultivate urgency, ask yourself, if I knew for certain that Jesus was returning tomorrow, what would I do? But also to cultivate that patience, if I knew for certain that Jesus would not return in my lifetime, what would I do? I hope the answer is the same for both. Light the torch on fire and tell as many people as you can about Jesus. Last question, who do I need to share this good news of the wedding day with? Hundred and forty years ago or so, Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage. And he said, It seems to me that it needs less faith to believe in the second advent of Christ than in his first advent. He has been here before and wrought a wondrous work, surely he will come back to receive the reward of his service. The good shepherd came to earth once to lay down his life for the sheep. He will surely come again as the chief shepherd to recompense the under shepherds who have faithfully kept the night watches for him. Jesus will come again as surely as the bridegroom came at the midnight hour. Lord, we pray that you would hasten your return. We pray that you would return soon. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. And until that day, Lord, would you help us to be patient? Would you help us to be prepared? Would you help us to be alert? Lord, even now as we turn our attention to the table of the Lord, as your word instructs us that we, that we would do this, While we await your return, we look back on your death. We look forward to your return. Strengthen us for the time in between. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is an update from the elders. First, we're going to talk to you about two things. The first one that I'm going to talk to you about is um, the progress that we're making in, um, I'm just going to say replacing Aaron. Okay, we're just replacing him. We're tired of him and we're done with it. That was harsh, especially after he just did so good. He's leaving. We didn't tell him. We didn't, I'm not kicking him out. All right. So uh, to that, the elders have been meeting regularly. And of course, we're praying and seeking God's uh, wisdom and will in this time and season. Um, In conjunction with that, we've got two things that are happening simultaneously that we want to make you aware of. Number one is we are putting together a uh, pastor search team, making sure I use the right word. Um, And some of you, we may have already talked to others of you. We will be talking to you uh, shortly about that. We have a short list of folks that we want to 
uh, doing that. It'll be very similar to the renewal team where it's a cross-section of uh, folks within the church. The second thing that I want to make you aware of is that we are employing a... um, What do you call those people? In my world, they're headhunters. What are they? (laughs) Staffing agency. Uh, We're we're employing a staffing agency to help us through that process. Uh, So they're going to help us find these candidates that we can uh, then take a look at and the uh, pastor search team uh, can help us go through those things. So we want to make you aware that this is uh, where we're at at the moment and these things will begin to start happening pretty rapidly. But I also want to prepare you for the fact that that doesn't mean that uh, we're going to have a guy here next week uh, ready, fired up to go, right? Uh, This could be um, a very quick process. It could be a longer process. Just kind of prepare yourself for that. But we're working through that, and I wanted you to be aware of that. All right, finally, uh, this is um, a personal announcement. Um, MJ and I are moving to Arizona, and that's going to be happening pretty rapidly, probably within the next uh, six to eight weeks. I know some of you that's kind of a shock, um, but I want to assure you uh, that there's, uh, there's two reasons for that, none of which have to do with uh, particularly what's happening in and with the church. Uh, the first reason we're doing that, some of you may or may not know that MJ deals with uh, some health issues, um, and we have been advised by medical professionals that um, the warm, dry climate could be helpful for her. Uh, secondarily, my position at my job has expanded into national oversight, um, and being in the Southwest is strategic for them, um, and I think it's just going to be beneficial for us as a whole. Uh, and so we uh, ask you to join us in prayers for that. Secondarily to that, uh, I am also going to be staying on in my position um, as elder uh, through the process of the pastoral search. Uh, Because my job, even though I will be located in Arizona, uh, my job is still based uh, based here in Seattle. And so I will be here six times a year. And I am going to do all the arm twisting that I can during those six times that I'm here to get to stand in this pulpit and preach um, God's word for you. So with all of that said, now the people that are going to pray because they're going to need some prayers now. Can, can run up. Let me interrupt briefly. Steve and MJ are beloved part of this church community. He held on to some of his news for a few weeks because of my announcement and transition and all that kind of stuff. This is an incredible blessing for Steve and MJ. So while it's sad for us and sad for the church in some ways, I'm imploring you all, let's be really joyful for these guys because this is a huge blessing for MJ's health, for his career, home purchasing, I mean, just all sorts of really, really good things. And I want to just publicly say with John and Doug, you can back me up, or Jason's in the back of the room. um, Steve has served so, so faithfully as an elder of this church. And I'm beyond delighted that he's even going to kind of be a, what would you call it? Elder in abstentia? What do you get to be yeah, a remote? It's yes. a Zoom, a Zoom elder? What Zoom do you get to, elder. Okay, it'll be a we'll Zoom elder. A we'll get a new term. So I just invite you guys to just shower them with love and blessings and prayers in this season as well, okay? So I love you, brother. Thank you. Thanks so much.